House Baptist Church. Good to see you all this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I want to thank you that we all made it here to church safely. I pray that you will help us get back to our homes safely afterwards. Um, and God, even though we pray for safety, I, I pray that safety wouldn't be our primary concern in life, but our primary concern uh, would be going out into the world to share the good news of Jesus uh, with our words and with our actions, God. I pray that we wouldn't make an idol out of safety. Uh, but we do thank you, God, for um, our health, um, for us being here to encourage each other, God. And um, God, we want to thank you uh, for the church. Uh, the church, God, is your bride. The church is all those who are in Jesus, God. And so we know not just one of us is the church, but we all make up the church. And so thank you, God, um, for loving us so much that you would die for the church. We love you, God. I pray that you would speak through me today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move, um, that it would enable understanding of your word, and that it would point us to Jesus. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're starting a new series today. You can look at your worship bulletin and you'll see that we're going over the book of Matthew for the next uh, five weeks. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And don't worry, I'm not just going to read the Sermon on the Mount and count it as my sermon. We're going to go over Jesus' great sermon on the Mount and look at it in a little bit more detail. So uh, it starts in Matthew chapter 5. So in verse 1 it says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus sees the crowds. He sees there's a huge crowd. He goes up on a hill or a mount, depending on your translation. Either way, he's going up to an elevated place. And then so when he gets there, he does what most teachers do. He sits. And so his disciples come up to be closer to him. His disciples are those who are committed to him as a rabbi. Now, the crowd, they're curious, but they're not necessarily committed to Jesus. So we have this kind of picture of Jesus up on the hill, his disciples kind of close to him. But it seems that the crowd is listening to him, or else why would the text say that Jesus saw the crowds and then went up on the hill to speak? So who is the audience of the Sermon on the Mount? It, it seems to be mainly the disciples, but it also seems to be the crowds, the Israelites, uh, that have gathered out of curiosity to hear what Jesus has to say. And so our, our text of it today is uh, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. I, I did think about going over the Beatitudes, um, but that's a sermon series in itself, isn't it? There's... That's a Bible study, sermon series, whatever you call it. But um, I'm going to jump to Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and we'll read it. It says, or Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So I'm going to take you all the way back to the 90s and maybe the 2000s. I've been known to do that lately with some of my sermon examples like Tours R Us we saw. But now I'm going to talk about Blockbuster. Any fans of Blockbuster here? Now, some of my best childhood memories were on Friday night going with my dad and brother to Blockbuster, picking out a movie, making some hot buttery popcorn and drinking an ice cold cherry coke. You get everything all ready. You're ready for movie night. You, you spend all that time at Blockbuster looking for a DVD that you've committed to. You're going to watch it. And then you put the DVD into the DVD player. And it goes... And you go, uh, uh-oh. And it says, disc not readable. Okay, great. Well, what, what good does it do me now to have this DVD if it's not readable? I can say, hey, I got this movie that I've been wanting to watch. It has the appearance of being the movie that I want to watch, but it does not have the function of the movie that I want to watch. It's great that it has the name of the movie I want to watch, but it doesn't work. It doesn't do what I bought it for. And as great as our technology has gotten today, now we have Redbox. We still have the same problem. You can rent a movie, bring it home, and it still may not work. So what do you do? You, you take it back. If it doesn't work, it's, it's not any good for you. It's not serving its function. And in this text right here, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to confront the Israelites about being obsessed with their appearance but not realizing their function. They have the appearance of being the people of God. They have the appearance of being lights for God, salt for God. But Jesus says, what good is that if you don't do what you were called to do? So what were the Israelites called to do? The Israelites were called to, like I said, be the people of God, but they were supposed to point the nations, the Gentiles, everybody else, to their God. And one specific reference we'll look at is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So this is all the way at the beginning of the Bible. And God calls Abraham and says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, in your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham gets a family that becomes a nation, Israel, becomes through the covenant, the old covenant, the people of God. But what did God tell Abraham that the function of that family was? The function was for all the families of the earth to be 
blessed through that nation. So they have uh, a role to play in pointing everybody else to their God. Now, every nation, every tribe seems to have their own God, but Abraham's family has a special role to point to the one true God. So, Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. But what does it mean to be the salt? What does it mean to be the light? Well, the first thing that Jesus talks about is you are the salt. And what does salt do? Um, We know the obvious one. We don't have to be Bible scholars to know that salt flavors food, right? So salt flavors, but uh, salt also had the function uh, to preserve meat. And so it flavors and it preserves. And so Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth. You show people, you show the earth the flavor of God. Doesn't that sound weird? God having a flavor? Well, of course, he's talking metaphorically here. We see that in Psalm 34, 18, the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And how can we know that Jesus is talking about taste? Well, he, he says it in the verse. He says, If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So Jesus is obviously talking about how something tastes. And he says, of all the earth, you have the role of being the salt that shows people the flavor of God. And so we can read this and apply it to ourselves because we are the people of God. All those who have faith in the Messiah are the people of God. What does the New Testament tell us? It says, oh, you thought it was just about who your family lineage was. You thought it was just about where you were born. But true Israelites are those who put their faith in God through Christ. And so we can read this and we can apply it to ourselves as Christians, as believers. Now, I imagine they're up there listening to this, not totally understanding what's going on, but they're at least hearing the message that, oh, either we forgot about our function of being salt or we just didn't care. And whether they forgot or they didn't care, the message is still the same that they have a role and they are supposed to play that role. So they show people the flavor. They show people that God is good. But what else do they do? Salt preserves meat that's going bad. He doesn't just say, you are the salt of your hometown. You are the salt of Israel. He says, no, you are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the whole earth. And guess what? The whole earth is going in the wrong direction. What is repentance? Repentance is turning around and going in the right direction. And so if the whole world's going in the wrong direction, your job is to help the whole world turn back in the right direction. But he says if salt loses its saltiness, what, what good is it for? I mean, if you're just going to be like the rest of the world and go with the rest of the world, then why does it matter that you have the role of being the people of God if you're just going to go along with everybody else and their gods? And so N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, God has called Israel to be the salt of the earth. 
But Israel was behaving like everyone else with its power politics, its factional squabbles, its militant revolutions. How could God keep the world from going bad, the main function of salt in the ancient world, if Israel, his chosen salt, had lost its distinctive taste? And so part of the role of being the salt of the earth is to restore the taste and to preserve the meat. And so Jesus says, you're a preserver. You preserve. You show the flavor of God. You're supposed to join in with me on what I'm doing in the world, and yet you're so obsessed with looking in the mirror that you haven't gone outside into the rest of the world. I mean, if I gave you a salt shaker because your food didn't taste that good and nothing came out, you'd say, this doesn't do me any good. I'd say, but it says salt. You'd say, okay, I don't care. It, it's not doing what I want it to do. And so Jesus says, um, if you've lost your taste, what are you good for except to be thrown out uh, for men to walk all over? And it's kind of like, the DVD example, if it doesn't work, what good is it for except to take it back and return it? It doesn't serve its role. And so he says, you are the salt, but if you've lost your saltiness, what was the point of being salt at all? And he goes into, after that, talking about being the light. He wants them to see that they have light, that they are light, but it doesn't do much good to have light and be light if you're hiding under a basket. Let's look at verse 14 through 16 again. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. But in John chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Uh, Okay, which is it, Jesus? Are you the light of the world? Or are we the light of the world? you got to make up your mind about this one, Jesus. Well, we don't have to pick or choose one. They both go hand in hand, don't they? We are the light of the world, but only because Jesus is the light of the world. It's almost like I said, hey, who's the light of the world? Is it the sun or is it the moon? you got to pick one. We can only have one light. But no, the sun shines on the moon, and the moon reflects the sun's light. So in the same way, we get our light from the one true Son, Jesus, and we have that light to shine. But the the moonlight doesn't really do much good if the clouds are covering the moon. And Jesus says, you are a light, but it doesn't do you much good to be a light if you're hiding under a basket. That's not your function. Your function is to be put up on the lampstand for everybody to see and for everybody to know where they're going when they walk into a house. I mean, the houses back then, they didn't have, like, a bedroom for the kids and the parents, a bonus room and an extra guest room. It was typically just one big 
open room, and that's where you all lived, and your light, your lamp, your light is on the lampstand for everybody to see. But it's important for us to not think that we get this light from ourselves. No, we get this light from God. We get it from Jesus because of the life, hope, joy, and peace that we have in Jesus. We have light. But Jesus says, you have light not just to keep it to yourself, not just to hide in your room. You are the light of the world. Now, I mean, look at all the lights that we have in here. Imagine if they were just turned off. When we came in here, we couldn't see where we're going. We're bumping our knee into the pews. We'd say, hey, somebody turn the lights on. We wouldn't say, oh, it's, it's, it's nice that we have lights. You would say, no, we have them. Let's use them. And so Jesus says, I've made you the lights of the world, but it's not going to help the world very much if you keep your light to yourself. No, shine your light. He says, shine. Shine is a verb, isn't it? It's an action. He says, you need to take the action. You need to be proactive in shining your light. Um, When I looked at this passage in the Bible, it reminded me of uh, when I went to Chicago, my freshman year of college, uh, it was one of my first big mission trips, and I was all excited, um, thinking, you know, I was going to change the world on this mission trip, but then reality sets in, nobody wants to talk to you, nobody wants to talk about the church. Uh, I remember the church we were working with, they gave us these surveys to take out on the streets of Chicago, and it was kind of awkward because it started out with regular questions and then it just all of a sudden switched into questions about the church and Jesus. So of course a lot of people felt tricked when you would hand them the survey and they felt like they were just helping you out and then it turned out that they felt like, oh, he's just trying to talk to me about Jesus and so they'd walk away. And So as the day was getting close to being over, I was feeling pretty discouraged. Like, why am I even here? Why did I come all the way out here to Chicago? This seems kind of pointless. Uh, And I remember we passed a woman on the street, and I'd seen her earlier at the church that we were working with. So I thought I'd talk to her. Hey, would you mind helping us fill out this survey? It was me and maybe three other people that I went to school with. And she said, yeah, that's fine. Um, So we started asking the question on the the survey, and it got to the more biblical Christian questions. uh, And... We listened to her questions that she had uh, about the Bible. I guess one of the questions was, uh, what do you not understand about God? There are all kinds of biblical questions. Uh, the thing that was so interesting about this woman is that she said, oh, well, I'm not a, I'm not a Christian, though. Uh, I'm actually a Satanist. And uh, I don't have a very good poker face, so I imagine my eyes were probably like, okay, uh, what? She said, yeah, the... Um, these little scars right here, these are where uh, I've given blood, you know, to our satanic cult. And, um, yeah, that was pretty weird to me. Uh, but I couldn't just run away. You could be like, oh, my gosh, this is weird. No, I, I sat there and kept talking to her. All of a sudden, I realized this is a big deal. Like, I'm having an opportunity to talk to someone uh, that needs someone to talk to, and I wasn't trained for that moment. All I knew was to just love this woman, care about her, 
listen to her, hear what she had to say. Uh, and it was pretty disturbing uh, to, to see some of the stuff that she had, like some of the CDs that she had. I could tell she didn't just make this up on the spot because she showed us uh, all this stuff uh, from her satanic cult. But uh, we just listened to her. We loved her. We talked to her. We walked around the city with her. And um, she said something at the end when it was time for us to leave and go. It's not like we converted her to Christianity. It's not like she left um, saying, I want to be a believer. But when we were about to leave, she said, you know, a lot of Christians come up here and talk to me every day. They kind of do what y'all did. They, They come up and they do a survey or they talk to me about their faith. But you three... You're the first group that ever made me feel loved at all. And that was pretty amazing to me. All the Christians, all the believers, all the missionaries, all the church people passing this woman every day, telling her what to believe, but not showing love to her, not making her feel cared about at all. See, words are good, and actions are good, and we need them both together, but we can't just use one or the other. We can't just talk someone into the kingdom of God, and we can't just work someone into the kingdom of God. All we can do is shine our light that we have. We have a light from Jesus, and yes, Jesus calls us to go to dark, scary places, and sometimes we may stumble in there not even knowing what we're getting into, but Jesus says, you... Not somebody else. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We're up on a hill. We're the church. Why are we turning our lights off? We need to have our lights on because people are going to see us anyways. Are they going to see us with our lights off or with our lights on? I didn't think I was doing anything special that day, but for her, for this woman, it meant something to her to feel loved and cared about, and our job is not to control people or to make decisions for them or to drag them into church. Our job is just to shine the light, to be salt. Salt can't make every food taste good. No. Not everything you see in the light is good. But that's not the salt's fault. That's not the light's fault. The salt's only job is to be the salt. And the light's only job is to be the light. And that's what God has called us to, to be salt and to be light. But it makes me think about Jesus. He's sitting up on this hill. He's raised up where everybody can see him. But Jesus preached another sermon, and it wasn't with words. It was on the cross, wasn't it? When Jesus was on another hill called Golgotha, he was displayed for everybody to see. But could Jesus taste the flavor of God? Could Jesus taste the goodness of God on the cross? No, he could only taste the flavor of death. He could only taste the flavor of misery. He could only taste the flavor of of sin. The most disgusting taste that we can think of was what Jesus tasted for us on the cross. 
And do you think it was very light up there on the cross? Maybe the sky was light, but Jesus was experiencing an absence from the Father for the first time. He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no light on the cross. There was no good flavor on the cross. Sometimes people read the Sermon on the Mount. They read the salt and the light passage that we just read. And as if Jesus is just giving us another example of how we're not good enough. Jesus is just setting such high standards that nobody can ever live up to. That would be the case if Jesus was just a teacher. But Jesus is not just a teacher. He's God in the flesh. And he's showing us not just how we've failed, but how he is going to be for us what we could never be for ourselves and what we could never be for the world. He is going to be the salt. He is going to be the light. We don't have to be the salt and the light to get to God. Jesus says, I came all the way down here. I died for you to give you, to show you the flavor of God, to show you how good God is, to shine a light where there was no light before. So Jesus experienced all of those things that we couldn't live up to, and he was those things on the cross. But that doesn't mean we just scrap those out. It's not like we say, oh, we don't have to be salt anymore. We don't have to be light anymore. No, Jesus still shows us the will of God. He shows us that this is what God wants. But we read stuff like this and say, I better be good enough salt or else I'm not saved anymore. I better be light enough or else Jesus is just going to abandon me. But Jesus says, I already knew that you weren't living up to your role as salt. I already knew you weren't living up to your role as light. But root yourself in me. Rest yourself in me, the true salt and the true light. And when we do that, we have good flavor in our lives. We have light where there once was darkness, but only because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so that doesn't excuse us from being salt and light. It gives us more reason to be salt and light. Whereas before we said, uh, okay, uh, God told Abraham because he is blessed, he had to be a blessing. Now, because when we see Jesus, we say, I want in. I want to, if God loves the world this much, and if he gave me this much love, then I want in. I want to be salt now. I want to be light now. And Jesus says, you can be salt now because the flavor of God is life. And we see that and we know that because Jesus was a light, but he didn't just hide in the tomb. He says, nobody lights a lamp and hides it under a basket. Couldn't Jesus have done that? Been resurrected and angels, keep, keep the door shut. I, I don't like it out there. I prefer to sit here in this tomb. No, he went out to shine his light for others to see that death had been defeated by God, sin had been defeated by God, and where there was once hopelessness, there's now hope. But we only see that because Jesus shined his light, and he calls us, he called his disciples to join him in being the salt and light. He said, go and make disciples of all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, pointing them to me, he commissioned them. He gave them, he said, you have a function. Don't just be satisfied with having the appearance of being a disciple because that's not going to do anybody any good, is it? 
No, your function as a disciple, what you do as a disciple, that is going to make a huge difference in the world. And don't worry, you, have to, you don't have to make salt. I am salt. Share it. You don't have to create light. I am your light. Share it with others. And sometimes we read Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and we say, well, this sounds good for the disciples. This sounds good, but it's just not for me. It's just not my personality to shine a light in the world. But isn't it so unsatisfying to live only for yourself? We think life would be better if I could just live for myself, but isn't that such an empty way to live? Even Jesus didn't live that way. Even the Son of God didn't live just for himself, but he made himself a servant. He loved people. I mean, we can say, oh, I wish life was just about me, but what's the problem with that? Don't you need others when you're sad? Don't you need someone to hug you when you're depressed? Don't you need someone to speak encouragement and hope over you. All these things that we expect from other people. People, come help me clean my house. People, come help me get food. Oh, but I'm not going to help. I only exist for me. Jesus says, no, you don't just exist for yourself. You exist for God and you exist for your neighbor. And yourself is important, but if you only live for yourself, it's just going to be an empty way of life. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. The Apostle Paul, who had his life changed when he realized who he was in Christ. He said, For the love of Christ controls us because we had concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for, this, who for their sake died and was raised. He died, not so that we could hide under a basket, but so that we could be placed on the lampstand and shine our lights. Why? So that they may see our good works and praise our Father who is in heaven. Somebody was a light on our path. You get to be a light for somebody else's path, but not if you hide in the basket. Only if you take your place on the stand. And it's going to be windy on the stand, and sometimes it's going to be dark, but shine anyways, because Jesus is the ultimate light. The darkness cannot overcome the light. When you look at the candle, the darkness may be there, but it, it It can't turn the light off because the light is too strong. And Jesus is our light. And he says, you're not just watching from the sidelines. You're joining me on the field in being salt and in being light. Because I didn't die just for you to live selfishly. I died for you to take up your cross and follow me. And in doing so, you're going to become a light, especially when you follow me out of the tomb. Let's pray.